Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to turn once again to 2 Corinthians, uh, to chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll read from verse 14 through uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, and this, as you find that this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the importance of Christian community to our walk with Christ. Now, by community, I don't only mean our local church community. Uh, I do mean that. I do mean Grace Reformed Church. But And by the time we're done, I hope you join me in seeing uh, this church is a very important and even one of the most important expressions of Christian community in our lives. But we can't pretend like the local church is our only Christian community uh, because we also have the internet. And as I'm sure we're all aware, uh, there are virtual communities of Christians too. Uh, Christians gather on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Reddit and blogs and podcasts. Uh, and that's not bad. Uh, I'm a part of a number of those things. I support uh, a few of, uh, of those things. But as I'm guessing we all know, not every gathering of Christians, not every Christian community produces Christ-likeness. Not every community of Christians fosters the same degree of faithfulness to Jesus. And to see an example of this, let's take a step back in time in American Presbyterian history and critique our own selves. Uh, the Southern Presbyterians, back in the 1800s, uh, their local congregations, their denominations, their publishing arms, which are sort of like the equivalent of the Internet, they taught their Christian members to believe that black people's skin color showed that they were cursed by God and created for slavery. They taught Christians how to read the Bible in a way that denied the explicit rejection of slavery that you find in the Exodus or in Revelation, where people who buy and sell slaves are literally called servants of the beast and the harlot, which are two of Jesus' three main enemies in the book of Revelation. Now, that doesn't mean that the Southern Presbyterians in the 1800s were not Christians, but it does mean that they were not conformed to Christ in some pretty big ways and in some ways that we know were very destructive and damaging. Now, at the same time, there were other Christian communities in existence who were trying to conform everyone, including the Southern Presbyterians, to Jesus. That would be many Northern Presbyterian churches and the Dutch Reformed churches, and the German Reformed churches, and the Methodists, and the Wesleyans, and the Congregationalists, and a number of Episcopalians. There were plenty of Christian churches and Christian communities bearing witness to this part of Christ's image to the Southern Presbyterians, but the fact remains the Southern Presbyterians rejected it. And they rejected it because the communities of faith that the Southern Presbyterians were in, from the local church to the informal gatherings of Christians sort of in the public squares and the pubs and grocery stores and all that, those had shaped them in such a way that they would not receive the word of Jesus and repent on that point. And I bring this up because in our day, there are lots of Christian communities. There are 
physical communities, specifically the local church. There are national communities from denominations like we're a part of to missionary organizations to political organizations that have a number of Christians in them. There are virtual Christian communities on YouTube, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, on and on and on we go. And they are not all equally helpful in conforming us to the image of Christ. Not all of them are teaching us to hear him well and follow him faithfully. And that concept, as strange as it might sound to some of us, though since some of us here have been personally damaged by Christian communities that were not well conformed to Jesus, this sounds all too familiar, and uh, maybe is even bringing up some uh, painful memories That concept of helpful and unhelpful Christian gatherings is really at the heart of our text this morning. Because Paul is addressing a local church that has different Christian communities within it. Some are healthy. Some are not. Some are producing greater Christ-likeness in those that are connected to them. And some, as we'll see, are actually deforming marring, throwing mud on the image of Christ that's already been produced, that had already been produced before they joined these unfaithful Christian groups. And what you're going to hear Paul say is that those deforming groups are unbelievers and that the Corinthians need to go out from their midst and be separate from them because he's an apostle and he's bold. Uh, What you're going to hear me say this morning, because I'm not an apostle and I'm not as bold as Paul is, is that we need to prayerfully consider the Christian communities around around us. The ones maybe we've already rejected, the ones we've attached ourselves to, or that we find ourselves drawn towards. And then we need to draw closer to the ones who call us and help us look like Jesus. Even though those will be the ones that will call us to do the hard things of loving our enemies, forgiving those who offend us, being generous and kind even to those who've harmed us, being holy, and all the other things that being faithful to Jesus entails. And you're also going to hear me say at the end that we need to then prayerfully and kindly leave the communities that don't do that. Uh, So let's hear what Paul says in our passage this morning, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7 verse 1 we'll pray and then we'll talk about uh, the three things you see there on the, on the board. Uh, let's uh let's read our passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's hear God's word. Jesus says to us through his servant Paul, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness?" What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, 
bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May it bless it to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we know uh, that we need your spirit to go forth with it so that we can be transformed by it and understand it and practice it. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, the words in my mouth is your preacher and the meditation of our hearts as those who are called to hear and respond to your word that would all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start this morning by asking the obvious question, which is, who are the unbelievers that Paul is talking about in verses 14 and 15? Uh, Now, if you're like me, maybe you are conditioned to read these verses as being about Christian marriage. Uh, So when I was being discipled in my middle school years, this passage was always, always, Uh, sort of trotted out as the proof text for why Christians should not marry non-Christians. Because if you marry a non-Christian, you'll find that your energies and your desires won't be headed in the same direction. You'll be unequally yoked. You'll be headed towards Jesus, and your non-Christian spouse will be headed somewhere else. And that's totally true. And I'm not actually against applying this verse to Christian marriage as sort of an extension of the principle that Paul is talking about here. But marriage between Christians and non-Christians just is not what Paul is talking about here directly at all, is it? Um, The words marriage, married, and wife don't show up in 2 Corinthians at all. And uh, the word husband does show up once in chapter 11 talking about Jesus being married to the church. No, what has the context been the entire time up to this point? It's been how the Corinthian church deals with welcoming back repentant sinners, showing forgiveness, being generous, making sacrifices, and ultimately creating and sustaining a holy community of faith together for Christ. Now, part of the context, which we haven't focused on very much yet, is that these poor responses that Paul has been addressing up to this point in the letter were being nurtured from within the Corinthian church by a group that Paul will call in chapters 11 and 12, the super apostles. And if you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians together, I think you can see what probably has gone on to create this group. So in 1 Corinthians, in the very first chapters, uh, Paul rails against these different personality cults that rose up in the Corinthian church. And Paul basically says, hey, look, I know that there are guys who are trying to create these sort of private clubs built around the names of famous Christians, even including me. But guess what? Like, you're not called to be my disciple or Peter's disciple or that guy's disciple. You're Jesus's disciple. And rather than creating all of these divisive, small, insular communities You need to be a united community, a united church built around Jesus that loves each other and serves each other. And that instruction clearly helped, but it obviously didn't totally solve the problem. And that's the ministry. Uh, There were still divisions in the Corinthian church because there were still people who apparently longed for fame and importance or who maybe just long for the feeling of security that comes from being associated with famous and popular people and knowing that you have 
the right way of doing everything. And at some point between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, these famous and popular preachers came along, maybe from outside the church, maybe from within. They're the ones that Paul calls the super apostles. And then, but then from within the Corinthian church, they started pulling a section of the Corinthians towards them. And they taught these Corinthians that the Christian way of life that Paul and Timothy had tried to disciple them in, that that wasn't really the right way of doing things. Or maybe they weren't that blatant. Maybe they just told them, hey, we have a better way of doing things. That way is fine. We have a better way. Or maybe just an equally valid way. That's one way to be a Christian. We have another way of being a Christian. Right? You can forgive people. You cannot forgive people. They're both fine before Jesus. However they did it, though, they apparently pulled a section of the Corinthian church into a different understanding of the Christian life. They started to re-disciple them in profound ways. And so with that background then, which we get from reading 1st and 2nd Corinthians together and paying attention to the details, I think you can start to see why more and more modern commentators uh, see unbelievers here not as a group outside the church. It's not a bunch of pagans speaking to Christians, trying to tell them, you know, leave Jesus and come worship Athena. They see them as a group inside the church. And I very much consider myself in that camp of modern commentator reading. And, but also, this reading of seeing this as a group from within the church solves a related problem, which has annoyed commentators and preachers on this passage for uh, a couple hundred years, which is, if this was an outside group of people, if it was what we usually call the world, it's hard to see why Paul would suddenly talk about the world in a discussion where he's been talking about how the Corinthian church is to behave with one another, and then return to talking about how uh, Paul is sure that the Corinthian church is going to hear what he was saying about their own internal life and open their hearts and, uh, and, and, and show brotherly love. Like, why the sudden shift to the world and then back again? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple, and that would be unbelievers aren't the world. There are those in the church who are acting contrary to Jesus' word. They're acting out of unbelief. And so then the next question would be, okay, so are those unbelievers not Christians at all? Are they wolves in sheep's clothing? Or are they simply misguided and misinstructed Christians? That is, are they Christians who are acting in an unbelieving way? And I think the answer to the question is yes. Uh, I do think Paul believes the super apostles are something like wolves in sheep's clothing. But I don't think he believes that everyone who followed them are wolves in sheep's clothing or that their professions of faith are unreal. Uh, because if he thought that, why would he tell them not to be unequally yoked, which implies faith, right? You have to have faith if you're going to be unequally yoked with someone who does not have faith. Or why would he say in chapter 7, verse 4, just a few verses down from where we were looking, he says, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, by which I think he means there, as we'll talk next week, their relational struggles, I am overflowing with joy. Like, how could Paul say that if these weren't Christians in some way? 
And all this leads me to what I want to focus on before we move on to our next point, which is the nature of faith. So kids, you can say this out loud and feel free to say it nice and loud, but don't shout it. What is faith? I know they know. Faith is trust. Yes. Extra grog candy for you, sir. Faith is trust. That's exactly right. The Greek and Hebrew words for faith mean trust. Trust in Jesus. And trust is not something that is invisible. It's something that you can see and verify. You can tell when someone has complete trust in something or someone else, partial trust, no trust. It's obvious. So usually in the New Testament, those without faith are those who do not trust in Jesus at all meaning they don't trust that Jesus is God and Savior. They don't entrust themselves to him for salvation. They don't entrust their lives to his way of life, which is why unbeliever in the New Testament usually means not Christian at all. But there are also plenty of times when God's people, especially in the Old Testament, which is two-thirds of the Bible, are called faithless. Because it isn't that they don't believe that God is the one true God, or that God is the Savior, or that God, you know, is the creator of all things. It's that they aren't living out of a trust in Him. See, most of the time in the Old Testament in Israel, faithlessness means not living according to God's commands and rules. Why? Well, because they didn't trust that God's commands and rules and word would actually lead them to life and blessing. And we experience this in our own lives all the time, right? Someone gives you advice, and you're like, well, I don't know if I can trust that that advice is going to get me where I want to go. We do that to Jesus too. And I think in the main, that's Paul's point here. The Corinthians aren't living lives that are reflecting trust, that are showing trust, showing faith in Jesus' ways over our own ways. And I think we can all understand why, right? Sometimes following Jesus, trusting in his ways, trusting in his presence, obeying his commands is really, really scary. And it's really hard because it opens us up to being hurt like we talked about at the beginning of our series. It opens us up to the need to sacrifice. It requires changing our plans from time to time. It means stopping projects, starting new things. It means listening to the people Jesus has put around us and to Jesus himself and changing our minds and changing our behavior to fit Christ's word. It means confession, where you actually go to people, flesh and blood, and say, here's what I did. I am sorry. And it means repenting. It means I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to work hard not to do it anymore. It means committing our money and committing ourselves, our whole selves, to following Jesus. It can even sometimes mean a lifelong sacrificial commitment to people who are difficult and hard to love, like can happen in a church. 
And the fact is, we don't always believe that trusting Jesus and living out of that trust, walking by faith with Christ, is blessed at the end of that journey. We don't always trust that the end's going to turn out okay. We don't always trust that the middle of the journey is going to have Jesus' presence in it, do we? And let's be honest, the beginning of the journey, which is often the hardest to start, that's where we can have some of the most hesitation. Is Jesus really going to respond? And we act out of that unbelief. And then there are people and communities that tell us in the name of Jesus that that unbelief is okay. That it actually represents something Christ approves of. And what Paul is calling the Corinthian church to do is to depart from those communities of Christians or wolves in sheep's clothing, whichever it is, who are teaching, supporting, and blessing unbelieving behavior, who are saying amen to faithlessness to Jesus and then having the gall to use Jesus' name to encourage it. Second point, the impossibility of communion. So like I just said, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand why leaving these communities of Christians that are teaching and cultivating unbelieving actions and thoughts is is good for us and ultimately, of course, good for them. Uh, Now, while I think it's obvious why we should depart from those communities, it is, I think, instructive to just look very briefly at the contradictions between communities that Paul raises in verses 14 to 16. I'm just going to read those again. I'll make a few brief comments. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So just to look at each thing quickly, uh, the idea of being yoked together is a metaphor that comes from plowing. Uh, You would hook up two oxen or two donkeys on a yoke, a big wooden thing that would go over their back, and then they would walk together to plow the field. And the point is, is that if you uh, try to yoke two different kinds of animals together, like an ox and a donkey, or a bird and a dog, right? You're not going to be able to do the job well, if at all. And if ministering for Jesus' kingdom is, like Jesus said, comparable to plowing a field and reaping a harvest, then trying to do ministry by faith, by trust in Jesus, that is by trusting in God's ways, doing it according to God's word, using God's means, you will not be able to accomplish it well if you are trying to work with people who don't want to do things God's way or follow God's word or use God's means who do it in an unbelieving way. Relatedly, when Paul talks about the partnership between righteousness and lawlessness, what he means is that there's nothing in common between them. So to partner with someone means you have to have something in common, right? You have a common goal, you have a common skill or whatever it is. Righteousness, which in the Bible is always following God's law. And lawlessness, not following God's law, righteousness and lawlessness, they don't have anything in common by definition, right? In every choice you make, you have to pick one and leave the other behind. 
And the same thing is true with the fellowship of light and darkness. And that word for fellowship there is the same common word that describes Christian fellowship and also the Lord's table, koinonia, communion. And the metaphor there is the ability to sit down and eat together, which in the Bible is the great picture of peace and joy, right? Like how does God want us to understand eternal life? Well, it's sitting down at a family dinner with singing and playing and just uber amounts of food, right? Well, light and darkness can't eat together because they can't be in the same place in the same time in the same way. Just like you can't walk in the light, living by faith, and also walk in darkness, living not by faith, at the same time, in the same place, and in the same way, right? To put a point on this, you can't be bitter and greedy in a believing way. You can't be selfish in a loving way. You can't be humbly proud, right? The next image Paul uses is, I think, really interesting. He says, what accord do Christ and Belial have? Now, Belial is a Hebrew word that means sort of generally worthless, though eventually it becomes to be another name for the devil. That's why you'll hear the Old Testament talk about people being sons of Belial. It starts off being worthless people, and then it means people who look like Belial or look like the devil. What's important to notice, though, is that in the Old Testament, the word Belial not only describes people who are selfish, dangerous, plotting liars, though it does, it especially describes people who keep God's blessings from others in order to enrich and help themselves. Who keep God's blessings from others in order to enrich and help themselves. So Eli's sons, Eli was the, uh, the chief priest in, the, uh, first, in first Samuel, and his sons would steal from the sacrifices that Israel would make to make themselves fat, which denied the Israelites the assurance of pardon that God wanted to give them because the sacrifices weren't complete. And the text describes them as sons of Belial or Belial. So what accord, what peace agreement, what harmony, that can also be the way that word is translated, can Christ and Belial have when Christ came to surrender everything to give us all the riches of God's blessing. While Belial and those like him deny God's blessings in order to enrich themselves. And then finally, and just to connect that to context, like denying forgiveness because it makes you feel good. That being an example of that. And then finally, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? I think a better translation there is what way of life does a believer and an unbeliever share in common? Because the point isn't salvation per se, so much it is the way that each group lives, the way of life. In what meaningful way does a believer's life look like an unbeliever's life? In what way does forgiveness and generosity look like bitterness and stinginess? How can sacrificing to keep God's law in building your life around that look like contented lawlessness? You see, I think Paul's point here is really quite clear, which is that if you follow a Christian community that doesn't commit itself 
to faithfulness to Jesus, you will be living a faithless life. And by the way, I think this is uh, why Paul believes people can actually tell the difference between a faithful Christian community and an unfaithful one. Paul here clearly has no, does not see any problem in telling the difference between these groups of people. And I think the reason why he does that is from another historical example of how this played out in his own life. Do you know that the word Christian means little Christs? And in the book of Acts, we learn that we were given that name by the people of Antioch because they were so impressed with the way the teachings of Jesus were lived out by the people of Jesus that they named us Christians. They said, you guys are like little imperfect, but like real living images of Jesus. We see you and we see little pictures of Christ. And this sort of what do we have in common list helps us then think about those things in a very similar light. When you read the Gospels, and then you look at the Christian communities that are available, do you see Jesus? When you read or hear the Gospels, do you hear Jesus saying, I will destroy my political enemies. Or no, I will not forgive you or apologize until you apologize to me. Or you know what? I, I do have to love them, but I don't have to welcome them here. Love doesn't mean that you have to like be kind. It just means you have to not say mean things on Facebook when they can see you in a public group. Private groups are okay. And when we think about the Christian communities that we inhabit, or the ones that I've been picking on, which are online everywhere, do some of them actively teach people to do those things? And the answer is yes, they do. Do we teach that here at Grace? No. At least I don't think so. But if we do, if you have examples of that, we need to repent of them. We need to turn from faithlessness and live because we need to be a faithful, believing community that shows Jesus, that proclaims and listens to his word and that helps each other take up our cross and follow him by faith, even when it's hard and we need to be a community that does that every single day. And that's why I want to end very quickly on this sort of final point, which is the promise that God will be with us. So at the end of this little section, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, he includes, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul ends this way because he knows that committing to being a faithful community or committing to leaving an unfaithful community for a faithful one is hard and it's scary. And that's why he reminds us of God's promises to us. And so the question you might have, which is the question I had when I'm studying this passage, is what promises are you talking about, Paul? Um, well, at the end of chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, Paul does one of his favorite uh, interpretive preaching tricks. In church language, we call it a katina, C-A-T-E-N-A, which is where you put different verses from the Bible together 
in order to help people see God's word in a new and fresh way, in order to help them see the way that your life and God's promises connect in the concrete uh, context that's being discussed. And so in that light, this is what God wants us to know. I'm going to read verses 16 to 18. He says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I'm not going to go through every passage they're taken from. You have side notes in most of your, most of you have Bibles that have side notes that'll help you kind of look those up. I'm just going to do it the way Paul wanted to have the impact, use, use it in the way that he wanted it to be used, which is, did you hear that God promises us that he will live with us? And he will walk with us. And he will be our God. And we will be his people. Did you hear him promise us that if we leave unbelieving communities and commit ourselves to being as faithful to Jesus together as we can, which does not mean perfection, but it does mean having faithfulness as our goal, that we can trust that God himself will welcome us, that we will not be left orphaned and in the cold, but will be embraced by the loving arms of God himself, and that we will know experientially with ever-growing depth and conviction that He is our Father and we are His sons and daughters, that we will know life with God at the beginning of the journey and in the middle of the journey and at the end of the journey in heaven. Which is such a powerful promise to end on. Because when you're faced with leaving communities that have uh, been judging and mistreating or misdiscipling other people and joining a community that wants to forgive and care for that same group of people and redisciple them like you had in the Corinthian church, you know that you will face ostracism and you want to know, is that going to be worth it? Will I be welcomed? And will Jesus be with me? And here's Jesus' answer. He says, you will know me with a power and depth you have not known before if you commit to follow me. You will know that I live with you and you will know my welcome. And my welcome, the Father says, is not just for this life, but forever. So my friends, let's prayerfully examine the Christian communities we're in. Let's hold them all up to Scripture and ask, is this really what Jesus looks like. And then let's draw close to the ones that do, kindly leave the ones that don't, and let's all pray that grace is and will grow and will always be a place where Christians are formed more and more into the image of Christ by faith, and that we will grow ever more faithful in understanding what that is and what that looks like so that we can look together more and more like our Savior and so bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that uh, 
Grace would be a Christian community that fosters the image of Christ in all its members and in all its visitors. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, uh, so that together with one voice we would glorify you in our individual lives and in our corporate life. And Father, where we are part of communities that are hindering or even working against your purposes for us, please show that to us and help us to uh, kindly and peacefully depart from them, trusting in your promise that your fatherly love will only increase in our lives as we draw closer to you and to those who are following you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake and for the sake of his purposes in our lives. Amen.